so I wrote about what it was like to actually be in an eating disorder and how it felt. And it resonated with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people and the comments and then Huffington Post asked to publish it. And then, um, you know, it was it ended up in a lot of other media um, as well. And it was in that moment that I realised that my story had a lot of power in it and that I could really, really use it to help others. And I knew in that moment, that very next day when I woke up and saw how many people, you know, had liked it and resonated and commented, I knew that this is what I was going to be doing for the rest of my life. I knew that it was a reason that I'd struggled so long and so hard and being told that there was no hope because I can now hand on heart stand here today and say it doesn't matter how long or how hard you have struggled with an eating disorder for, full recovery is possible. I am living proof of that. Welcome to the Self Love Podcast, the show that helps crack open your heart and inspire a deeper regard for your own well-being and happiness. Proudly brought to you by 28 Essentials. Here's your host, the gorgeous Kim Morrison. Welcome to this week's self-love podcast. I'm super excited to bring to you an extraordinary guest this week, the amazing Millie Thomas. You know, she's someone who I've really only met in recent years, but certainly feels like this young woman has been in my life for much, much longer. She shares her story very candidly and very openly. And I want you to know that this week's podcast is all around a bit of a taboo subject, which is all around eating disorders. Now, Millie battled anorexia nervosa for 15 years, and it's fair to say she came very, very close to losing her life to the illness. She had been given up on by her treatment team and told to consider palliative care options. Her parents, her family were distraught. Millie couldn't believe that everyone had given up hope. But through one amazing therapist and the ability to open her heart, mind, body and soul and to do the work that was required along with her loving, caring support with her amazing parents and brother, not only was that conversation a catalyst for a complete health, life and well-being transformation and recovery, but also set her on course for an incredible career. Millie left her hometown of Auckland, New Zealand and moved to her happy place, that's what she calls it, her happy place on the Sunshine Coast. This is where she became determined to use her lived experience to help bring eating disorders out of the shadows and into the light. She dedicates her time to eating disorder advocacy and eating disorder recovery coaching. She helps clients around the world to gain freedom from their eating disorders and reclaim their lives. In addition to her private practice, she works on the Sunshine Coast with the charity NED, where she's been involved in numerous projects, including the establishment of Australia's first residential eating disorders facility, Wandi Nerida. She believes that no matter how long or hard someone's journey is with an eating disorder, it's always possible for a full recovery. And she is without doubt living proof of that. I recommend that you listen to this with your young children, 
if you're concerned or have any worries around where their mental health or what could be going on for them. I recommend that you listen to this if you're a carer of someone with an eating disorder. And I certainly encourage all therapists and wellness teams to be involved in hearing the words of this remarkable, incredible young woman. Welcome to the beautiful Millie Thomas. So it gives me great pleasure this week, as you heard on the introduction, that one of these dear souls that's in my life is the amazing Millie Thomas. And I have been really excited to share with you her story. She is someone that's, I would consider very inspirational, but also someone who really knows what it's like to go to the depths of despair, if for want of a better word, and also uh, really having to make decisions, good decisions on how to climb out of that place of despair. So beautiful, Millie, welcome to the Self Love Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Camille. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Well, you know, I've been thinking about this for a long time. We've had the pleasure of studying together. We've had the pleasure of both saying we come from New Zealand. We both have the pleasure of living on the Sunshine Coast. And we both have climbed through our own um, times of trouble and, and strife. And But before we get there, talk to us a little bit about who Millie is, how and where she grew up, and what life was like back in NZ. Absolutely. So, uh, as you have said, I now live here on the Sunshine Coast. But prior to that, I grew up in Auckland and New Zealand. I had a wonderful childhood. I was very, very lucky. I grew up with an incredibly loving uh, family, my wonderful parents, Kath and Grant, and my beautiful brother, Eddie. And we had an amazing, amazing childhood. Dad is very into his boats. So we spent many, many uh, family holidays exploring the Haraki Gulf. And um, also mum was amazing at really being determined that we were going to explore our own country before we went overseas. So we did some beautiful trips in the South Island and we had, had just had fun. I really wonderful childhood that I have such fond, fond memories of. I then um, started at Siddhartha's College uh, when I was in year seven. And unfortunately for me, that was where anorexia took hold. And that was the start of a very, very long, very, very harrowing journey for me. So I was 12 at the time. And as I've said, up until then, I was happy, free little kid. And what I know now upon reflection is that I had the genetic component for having an eating disorder. I also had the personality characteristics. And then I was thrown into an environment that when I talk about it, I say the um, genes load the gun and then the environment pulls the trigger. So for me, St. Cass was that environment. Uh, I felt that I just needed to measure up. I wasn't quite good enough. And my brain immediately thought, well, if you just lose some weight, you will be. And unfortunately, that meant that within months, I was very, very deep into my eating disorder. And that got to a point where I was taken out of school in year eight because that was the only way that we could see that we were ever going to be able to tackle this beast, for want of a better word. And I do call about, do talk about it like a beast because that's what it feels like. It's this insidious, devious thing inside of you that's just determined to kill you, basically. Um, and I was taken out of school and we did uh, family-based therapy, which was what 
you know, what was said to be the most effective course of treatment at the time. However, what happened was that I was, well, I was, I was nourished, I was re-nourished and got to a weight that was acceptable. However, all the underlying psychological factors that we know are so crucial to work through, all that, what I call the bedrock of mating disorder was never addressed. And so for me, I went back into school at year nine and everybody thought, this is great, you know, Millie's well. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, Kim, I was so not. I didn't participate in life like every other teenage girl did. I didn't go to parties. I didn't have relationships. I threw myself into academia to mask the hunger, not only physical, but spiritual and emotional that I felt because it was something that I could do and I could focus in on and I could be good at. Um, And that continued right throughout my my high school years. You know, I I managed to maintain a weight that rode a line of me not needing to be hospitalized or go into treatment because my body, you know, was, was coping okay. I was at that sort of minimum BMI of being all right. And then in year 13, so my last year at school, I was offered an incredible opportunity to go to the Global Young Leaders Conference in uh, Washington, D.C. in New York. Um, And that was my first overseas trip away without my parents. And I really didn't think much of it other than what a fantastic opportunity. I was going as a representative of New Zealand. There were people from all over the world. We were going to the United Nations. We were doing these you know, once in a lifetime things. And so I said yes. And it wasn't until I got on that plane and I sat down and my eating disorder just took hold that I realized this is going to be really tricky because I really struggled to eat if I wasn't forced to eat or knew that I, you know, had someone there saying, well, no, you have to have this. And so there I was going on this trip. No one knew me. No one knew that I was unwell. And it just dug its claws in and said, well, this is great because you don't have to eat now. And so that trip was an incredible experience, absolutely. However, it, it, it I, I came back a lot lighter and really unwell. Um, and I remember, I actually remember mum crying at the airport when I walked through the doors when she hugged me because she was just so distraught, the fact that I'd gotten so fragile while I'd been away. And when I got back, unfortunately, I was 18, I was an adult now, um, that became my new normal. No one could force me to do anything. And so that became my new normal, my new weight, and... Then, you know, of course, got all these amazing scholarships, went to university, topped the business school, did all these fantastic things, none of which I celebrated because I had zero self-worth. And so, you know, even topping the business school, I remember that. And well, let's go up to dinner to celebrate. No, because it wasn't good enough, Kim. It wasn't good enough. I could have done better. I could have got this. I don't know how I could have done better in that respect, but at that point in time, I did. I felt like I could have done better. Um, threw myself straight into my career, into you know getting a job, that sort of thing. And again, work, it masked everything. So I pretended that things were okay. Then, of course, there were moments where I had to stop work because um, my bosses would be too worried about you know my physical health and me collapsing at work. 
So then I would go and travel and pretend that I was just taking a break. And I would, it's interesting when Facebook memories come up and you see these pictures of me smiling from ear to ear in you know, numerous different countries around the world. And I remember those trips vividly. I also remember the absolute hell that was going on for me inside internally uh, and how completely consumed I was the entire time by anorexia. Um, don't get me wrong, there were, there were nice moments in it, but it wasn't a life. It wasn't living or traveling as anyone else would have it. At that stage, I was still being seen as an outpatient uh, at, from the, at the Green Lane Hospital. And I was working with a team there. And so this is about my mid-20s now. And there was a day that I will always remember. And we went in and it was mum, dad and I all went in. And we were in a room there with several clinicians. And, and the head psychiatrist said that my case of anorexia was too severe and enduring. And it really hadn't seen anything like it. And that you know, survival really wasn't something that they considered to be feasible and so palliative care options were really what we needed to look at and you know up until that moment I had although I really didn't feel a sense of hope inside of me because I was so beside myself I I had been holding on to the hope that mum and dad had that I would get well because they always held that hope for me and the moment that the so-called professional said basically that there was no hope, that was this moment of real devastation that if they don't think I can get well, then okay. It almost felt a bit like game over. Why? Why would I fight so hard? Because I can tell you right now, recovery from an eating disorder is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. It is excruciatingly painful on a physical, mental, emotional, spiritual level that you cannot even begin to describe to someone that hasn't gone through it. And I just thought, what is the point in trying if they're saying it's not even possible? And prior to this, it also said, even if you do recover, you'll just have to live with the voices for the rest of your life. You'll always have to manage your eating disorder. And to me, I thought, what, what's the point in that? I don't want to fight this hard to always then have to manage my eating disorder. So I walked out of that session that day and unfortunately over the next, I don't know what the time period was between that meeting and when I then walked into my GP's office, but let's say there might have been a year or so. Uh, at this stage, I'm 27. And it's my family GP that I'd seen since I was a child. And I'd gone in to get some test results for something. And I remember him taking one look at me and I remember him, I could see him welling up, you know, tears in his eyes. And um, and he just said to me, look, you, you have a week, maybe two to live. You, you need to decide. Your body is not going to keep handling this. You need to decide whether you want to live or whether you want to die. And I've never been suicidal. I've never once thought about ending my life. But in that moment, you know, I'd fought so hard. This stage, at the stage of the game, I've been fighting for 15 years and it has been an absolute war every moment of every day. And 
I could not fathom how I was ever going to be at peace unless it was up in the sky looking down on the world from afar. And it petrifies me that I came so close to to giving that all away. I made a decision that day. I said to him, I can't do this anymore. I I have to make the decision that, you know, I'm going to die. And so because his he he needed to know that in terms of how he was going to support me in this next phase or chapter, for want of a better word. And I, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't fathom waking up another day to face this reality, which was just this miserable existence. And, you know, I had the bones of an 80-year-old. I had a heart that was constantly, um, you know, had to be in and out of hospital. And I had... I was just cold. I was permanently cold all the time. I couldn't sit down because my bones would stick out. I just was aching from head to toe and I was forcing myself to punish myself with the exercise on very, very little nourishment. And I didn't sleep because my body was just so starving and it literally felt, and it's a feeling that's the only way that I can describe it is it felt that my body was eating itself from the inside out. So of course you're not going to sleep. So I would sit up at night just waiting for the morning to come. And then of course I'd have to do all the routines driven by the OCD and the anorexia. And it was, I just didn't want to live if that was going to be my life anymore. So I went home and I told mum that that was, you know, where, where I was at with things. And Fortunately, she, she she understood where I was at because she'd seen how how hard I had battled, and also she knew that we tried, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars later, we'd done numerous rounds of different therapies over the years, and I, she said to me, she'd found this woman online who specialises in NLP, so neuro linguistic programming and hypnotherapy. And she was going to be going over to the Sunshine Coast. This woman was based in Parisian Beach on the Sunshine Coast. And she wanted me to come to the Sunshine Coast with her because it had always been my happy place. And, you know, there was this thought of what better place to spend my last days if that's what, what, if what they were going to be than in my happy place. And so we came over here to the Sunshine Coast. It was a big risk. You know, I didn't have medical clearance to fly because of my heart. Um, we took a giant leap of faith in coming over here, but mum felt that it was it was the right thing to do. And we started NLP and hypnotherapy uh, with my amazing therapist, Silky. And <laughs> I did it for mum, really. I mean, I did not think for the life of me that this was going to have any effect. I had been told by the specialist, by everybody under the sun, that it just wasn't a possibility. And we started therapy and it was really, really hard. You know, at this point I was, I mean, I was very, very, very far gone. And it was interesting. I, I recently interviewed Silky for, for my podcast and uh, my producer Dave was asking some questions uh, afterwards um, about what it was like to treat me when I was when I was practically dying. And Silky reminded me of things like the fact that I pretty much had to be carried up the stairs to her treatment rooms and that I would pretty much almost fall asleep within two minutes of, of sitting down in a chair in session because my body just had nothing to give. And 
she also reminded me that there were many times where I told her to F off and I would storm out of the room and then she would say, well, you can't talk to me like that. And so she would, there was a lot that went on. I remember some of it. There are massive parts that I have no recollection whatsoever of because my brain was just so starved. However, Silky challenged me on the very foundational stuff that no one had ever challenged me on before. And that was the bedrock of my eating disorder. Those things were the things that were keeping my eating disorder alive. That's what was keeping the door open, keeping its foot in the door. You know, I often think about it like an octopus with all these tentacles and you know, I'd cut some off, but it always leaves some. And I've never really let anyone go there, go down to that deep stuff. And she went straight there and it's shitless. And I didn't want her to go there because I wanted to hold on to that because that was a safety net. But after storming out of the room and telling mum I would never go back, I think it was that week, you know, maybe four days after the session where I sat on the sand dune with mum and I turned to her and I said, do you think Silky's right? She said to me, well, darling, look where we are 15 years later. So why don't you give it a try? And it was in the letting go of these values and these beliefs that I'd held within me for so long, these conditions that I'd placed on my recovery that I was then able to, I call it coming home to myself because I was always there. That little girl inside of me was always still there it was just completely consumed by my eating disorder and so it was a process of coming home to myself but I also talk about it as becoming softer so not only was becoming softer and less angular in how my body presented itself but also in terms of how I viewed the world how I interacted with the world you know when you're in anorexia everything is just so black and white it's so harsh And I was able to just open myself up and be vulnerable and notice things that I've never noticed before. You know, I would go for gentle walks on the beach with my mum and notice the light on the ocean and the shells and the sand rather than being hell-bent on how long we'd been going for or what speed I was going at or all the million and one thoughts in my head about what I'd eaten before. I was able to, and this took months, but I was able to come back into the present moment and I was able to recognize that if I held on to those values and beliefs, I was going to die. And I'm, I didn't want to die not knowing what it was like to truly live. I was 12 when I got unwell. I was still a little kid. I didn't know what it was like to live like an adult and have independence and be okay, feel okay within my own skin. And so, you know, some of those core foundational things were not caring what other people thought of me. I was just absolutely obsessed. And I vividly remember the day Silky just sat there deadpan and said, how do you know what people think of you? And I, turned to her in my very, you know, indignant, stubborn way and said, well, I do because they tell me. How do you know they're not lying to you? Well, because they wouldn't lie. How do you know that? How will you ever know that? And it was this moment, real mind, yeah, it it, it was a mind. It was like, what? What do you, what? I, I actually get what you're saying though. And so... I could be, I'm channeling all this time and energy here into worrying what people think and I will never actually know. And slowly but surely I was able to to let go of that. And the other thing had been, I'll gain weight, but I'm only going to gain weight to this certain number 
and I want to look exactly like this. So I had this image in my head, this perfect image of so-and-so's arms and so-and-so's legs and my stomach was going to look like this. And as long as someone could promise me that that's how I was going to end up, then okay, I'll gain the weight that you want me to gain. And she, that was the biggest one that really threw me because this idea that I wasn't going to know what I was going to look like or be like at the end of this process petrified the living daylights out of me because you have to understand I had completely lost myself and my eating disorder. I did not know who I was without my eating disorder. I had absolutely no clue. And again, not only on a physical level, on a mental, emotional, spiritual level as well, no clue. And so it was this process of unearthing that and who really am I and what are my values? And coming, well, as I say, coming home to myself and realizing, okay, you know, this is actually a process that can be amazing. Yes, it was confronting the whole way through, but I switched from going, I'm jumping off this terrifying cliff and into this deep, dark abyss to let's, and I, I talk to my clients about this all the time, let's look at it instead like a blank canvas, a blank canvas on which you can splash whatever brightly colored paint on that you want. You get to, in the recovery process, reinvent yourself in whichever way you want. And I think although recovery from an eating disorder and, and experience an eating disorder is, is absolutely harrowing, what it does give you is an intimate, intimate understanding of yourself and your personality characteristics. And you, you know yourself inside out. And so therefore you have this ability to be able to harness that in order to create the life that you truly want to be living. And so I was six months, six months of really intense therapy and I was alive again. <laughs> I was living. I was eating freely. I had a healthy relationship back with exercise and I was absolutely thrilled. It, it was very much pinch me material after 15 years to feel like I was here in this world. Um, I went home to Auckland and quickly realized that that was not somewhere that was going to be conducive to me maintaining my recovery. It just wasn't, uh, where I needed to be. So I went to LA, which I've got a lot of beautiful, beautiful friends in California and it's another really a place that's really close to my heart. And so I went there and spent a few months there finding myself reveling and going to cafes that I'd been on many uh, an occasion on previous trips to LA where I'd looked at cupcakes and taken photos of cupcakes, not eating the cupcakes and sat down and ate the damn cupcake and took great pleasure in doing very simple things like that. And also just living and doing what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. I know those sounds like really simple things, but you're not in control of your life when you're, when you're in an eating disorder, you can't just have an afternoon nap. Things have to happen exactly how the eating disorder wants them to happen. And so one of the pivotal moments that happened when I was in the States was I was in a park and I heard a, a woman was pushing a little girl on a swing. And I would have said she would have been about six or seven, definitely no older than that. Maybe, maybe five. I don't know. Anyway, she said to this young girl, you're getting too fat. I won't be able to swing you uh, anymore soon. 
And I had this visceral reaction in the pit of my stomach to hearing that comment because all I could think was, do you have any idea the chain of events that this could trigger off for this little girl, this innocent little girl, and the years of hatred for her body or concern about her weight that this could result in? And at the time, I was far too uh, fresh in recovery and um, certainly not feeling strong enough to say anything to to the woman. Um, However, I went home that night and I reflected on how people have been asking me to write about my story and they've been saying, oh, you you should write about it, you should write about it. And I'd always thought, oh, goodness, there's so many books on anorexia recovery. I mean, my goodness, I, I read a lot of them in my own recovery. And I thought, until I have something unique to offer, it's not something I feel like doing. That night, about 2 a.m. in the morning, some random time, I just woke up in bed and I was like, no, I have to write. And in those days, you posted things on your Facebook wall, even if they were big, long essays of things. You just posted them on the wall. And so I wrote about what it was like to actually be in an eating disorder and how it felt. And it resonated with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people and the comments and then Huffington Post asked to publish it. And then, um, you know, it was... It ended up in a lot of other media um, as well. And it was in that moment that I realized that my story had a lot of power in it and that I could really, really use it to help others. And I knew in that moment, that very next day when I woke up and saw how many people, you know, had liked it and resonated and commented I knew that this is what I was going to be doing for the rest of my life. I knew that it was a reason that I'd struggled so long and so hard and being told that there was no hope because I can now hand on heart stand here today and say, it doesn't matter how long or how hard you have struggled with an eating disorder for full recovery is possible. I am living proof of that. And that I can, I can use that to show people that it's worth it, the fight is worth it, and that it is possible no matter what you're being told. And so I decided that day, I booked flights back to Auckland. I gave myself 48 hours back in Auckland to pack up my life, move to the Sunshine Coast to my happy place because I thought if I fought this hard to get well, I'm going to live where I want to be living, in my happy place. And so I moved here. I had this dream of starting an eating disorders charity And within two weeks of moving here, I was introduced to the incredible Mark and Gay Forbes, who are now my Aussie mum and dad. And they had started an eating disorders support group for parents uh, called End Ed. And they had been running that out of their home. And I came along, uh, this little little lost Kiwi, and said, hey, (laughs) I'd really like to help people who are, you know, in the midst of it all. And... We were just so aligned in our values and our vision and our passion um, for helping others that I thought, right, I'm going to work with work with them. And so we also had the overarching um, vision of establishing Australia's first residential eating disorders facility as well. Um, now, fast forward to today, <laughs> we have achieved that dream. Uh, Australia's first residential eating disorders facility, Wandi Nerida, is standing proud on a beautiful 25-acre property in Malula Valley here on the Sunshine Coast. 
and I work with NDED as an eating disorder recovery coach. So I trained in the USA under the incredible Carolyn Coston. And I have also trained with you under the amazing Juliet Lever to become uh, an NLP practitioner as well. And so I use a combination of the two, the recovery coaching certification and my NLP practitioner training to really help people to reclaim their lives and, and find their freedom. And I also do a lot of lived experience advocacy work um, online and um, at a more sort of systemic level. And I have, we have recently, uh, India has recently launched a podcast series. It was my first uh, foray into hosting, which is, which is really, really interesting, but it was also a really, um, it was a labor of love, that project. I poured my heart and soul into it. I was determined that if we were going to produce a podcast series, that it was going to be applicable to anyone, people who have had eating disorders, people who haven't, parents, carers, siblings, People have got no idea and they just want to find out more. And so it's an incredible 20 episodes of not only have I got people with lived experience, but I've also got experts from around the world. I've got the incredible Dr. Cynthia Bulick, who is heading up the largest study uh, that's ever been undertaken into the genetics behind eating disorders. So I've been um, an advocate. That's one of the other things I've been sort of advocating for and um, in Australia is people to uh, to sign up to that project because it's absolutely an incredible opportunity for us to um, further eating disorder treatment worldwide. I interview her, I interview Carolyn Costin. I've got men who've struggled with bulimia and binge eating disorder. I mean, that was one of the things about the podcast was there are so many myths and stigma still surrounding eating disorders and we need to dismantle them. The more that we talk about eating disorders, the more that bring them out of the shadows the less stigma and the more that people will come forward and feel like they can say what they're experiencing and get treatment before the eating disorder becomes even more ingrained. Um, and we also run beautiful support groups here on the coast as well as the individual recovery coaching. And we have recently uh, purchased a beautiful property in Wumbai, which we will now be establishing in Dead House of Hope on, which will be a beautiful space of hope and healing where we can um, invite people to come for day programs. Um, and we are very, very excited about establishing that in the new year. And last week, I launched my private practice, Healed. So, that has been a dream of mine since I first recovered. So for five years and I bit the bullet and with some encouragement from you, I, I launched and I have been absolutely overwhelmed with the support um, and the, the outpouring of people who've just wanted to work with me and, and wanted help and, and, and just wanted that, that hope and that lived experience. And I, um, I'm hum absolutely humbled by it. I'm really, really excited to see uh, where Healed goes alongside all my not-for-profit community work as well, which I'm so deeply passionate about. Um, and I think it really, really speaks to the fact that lived experience in the mental health space just cannot be underestimated. It is so, so important because you have this special connection with the person that you are helping in terms of they have an implicit trust 
because you have walked that path. And I always say that with my clients, I am walking alongside them on their journey to freedom. I cannot force them to do anything, but I am there gently encouraging, advising and supporting them as they make their way home, so to speak, home to themselves. And I really do feel that I will be doing this for the rest of my life. And people often ask me, you know, do you regret um, going through your eating disorder? And look, it was excruciating. It took me to the absolute depths of despair of, you know, there were moments where I wanted to, I literally felt like I wanted to tear my skin off. There were moments where I would just sob and sob and sob for days on end because I couldn't see any way out. But it has given me the life that I have now without having fought that war because it was it was a 15-year-long war inside me. I would not be here today doing what I'm doing um, and and helping others. And so I feel incredibly, incredibly grateful that my journey allowed me to find my purpose. It's extraordinary listening to you. And it's it's quite a phenomenal journey and one where I'm sure everybody listening to this um, will actually see a part of themselves in your story. We don't have to have an eating disorder to understand the depths of despair, some of us. We don't have to have um, walked the same path to have any empathy with what you've been through. But if you could say there was one lesson that you took from those 15 years, one pivotal point, which I know there was many for you along the journey, but one thing that you really do believe saved your life. Honestly, it was the moment that Silky told me that I could change my brain, that if I wanted to, that I could. I'll never forget, like I have this, now I'm talking to you about it now, I've got this vivid, vivid image of her in my head and what she was wearing that day when she said to me and she just sat there ever so casually in a chair. She was like, well, you can change your brain if you want to change your brain. And I sat there and I said, well, they told me that I can't and that I'll have to manage it for the rest of my life. No, you can change it. Do you want to change it? Well, of course I want to change it. Well, you can change your brain. It takes effort and you've got to dive in with me and you've got to go there, but you can do it. And being told that that was possible, being given that hope back, that allowed me to walk out of that room that day and go, okay, you know, I am going to take the leap of faith. Because as I said to you, when I went to the initial appointments, I really was just doing it for mom. I thought, well, this isn't going to work. The, the, after the first appointment, I walked out and said to mom, look, mom, that was, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to let you take me for another session because it was a waste of money because I just sat there thinking about the size of my thighs and the fact that I should be out walking. I don't remember anything that she said. And I remember walk, and mom convinced me to go back for another session. And in that session, she said to me, yeah, no, that's fine. That's fine because I'm working on your unconscious. So I need to, sleep, need to let your conscious mind run because your eating disorder is so strong. There's no way that I'm going to stop that. I'm working on your unconscious. And I just thought to myself, I owe it to myself to give, it, to give this a go. You know, the thought of not, as I said, dying, not knowing what it was like to truly live, I, that didn't sit well with me. I wanted to give it a go. And, and in my head, and it was a bit of, I guess it wasn't the best logic to think, to think of, but 
I thought if I hate it that much on the other side and I detest and despise my body that much at a higher weight, I can always go backwards. I'm pretty good at that. And, you know, it's interesting from my perspective, trying to understand where the human mind goes to get to this space. The body wants to survive. We are born to survive. We do whatever it takes to survive. You were brought up with an idyllic childhood, a beautiful mum and dad, a gorgeous brother. You went to a beautiful school. And yet at the fundamental core of who you were, did not think you were good enough or that you measured up. Where did that belief come from? I'm not sure. It's I can't remember exactly in pinpoint okay, that's exactly where it began. I think there were inklings of it. Uh, when I started at St. Cuss, I know it was exasperated by having a friendship with a particularly toxic uh, girl who would manipulate and, and, and say things to make me feel inadequate. For example, we would go to the mall and go shopping and we'd buy jeans and she was a very, very different build to me. Um, and she would get me to try on her jeans. And of course they fitted me differently. And so therefore I somehow felt that that was wrong and that they should fit me like they fitted her. But in order for me to think like that, there had to be something prior to that, you know, this, and, and so I'm not quite sure why or, or how that, and look, it could have been something as simple as me being at a different growth stage to a lot of the other girls that were in my year. You know, we go through these moments in life where, especially in our teenage years, where everyone's growing at different rates and it's hard and there's hormones and all of those things. And, you know, and then you've got the genetic predisposition. And I, wanted to talk, I want to talk to you about that because, and sorry to interrupt you, but I just, you know, that's a fascinating side in itself, the whole yes. epigenetic side of things. You talked a little bit and you kind of brushed over the OCD and there's that element of yes. high expectation, high yes. achievement levels. So you can almost understand what I'm starting to paint here is there's a limiting belief that occurred somewhere as a young girl who then got it reinforced by a girl she obviously looked up to and stood in a dressing room, which reinforced the belief she wasn't good enough. Then throw into the fact that you're a high achiever and want to be the best at whatever it is that you do. Then throw into the fact that you're around a whole lot of high achievers. And now we're talking about the hormonal changes of a prepubescent and going through puberty where all our hormones are shaken up anyway. That epigenetics, which is only just coming into the fore, have you found with the people and the experts you've been speaking to, is what you're suggesting is that there's a predisposed um, genetic expression that can occur with those alongside limiting beliefs and then reinforced behaviours and actions? Yes. Yes. Talk to me a little bit more about that. So what we know is um, so the MTFHR gene yeah. uh, predisposes someone to having an eating disorder. Now with, with EDGE, with Eating Disorder Genetics Initiative, um, that's happening around the world as we speak. The aim of that is to identify more uh, parts of the genome where where people the genes are expressed. Now, if we can identify those parts, we can then look at targeted treatments, but also you know better screening. So therefore, more prevention, uh, which is absolutely key. Now when you look at someone who has the genetics and then they have the personality characteristics. So for me, so for anorexia, I ticked all the boxes, high achiever, OCD, perfectionist. 
you know, all of those those things, um, I didn't really have a chance because when you're then put into an environment that uh, basically it's a perfect storm. And so then you're in it before you can even blink. And once you're in it, it's incredibly, incredibly difficult to climb out. So the brain starts down a pathway, creates stronger neuroplastic um, loops and, and connections that that's your new normal. I can't help but think of your beautiful mum and dad. They would have wanted you to go to the best school, like any parent. They would have wanted you to be in the best environment. They would have, your mum's a chef. She would have cooked you the most amazing foods. They would have wanted the best, absolute best, as every one of us mums and dads do for our children. And yet you're saying you were put into an environment that was basically the perfect storm. They wouldn't have known that. You wouldn't have known that. The school, I dare say, would have hated to have thought that they would have created that, not that they did, but you know what I'm saying, that the school, um, private schools, but it can happen in public schools, right? It's just the environment. Then talking about the girls that you would have become friends with also could have been high achievers, but maybe their, uh, I guess, expression of their high achievement could have occurred in other ways. We then add in the fact that school, there can be a little bit of bitchiness, jealousy, gossip, um, you know, all of the stuff that is framing our world into such a space, like you say, the perfect storm. Could it have been broken by just removing you from that school and taking you to another school? Is there a signal for us mums that when we see our daughter or our son struggling, it removes, like, is it as simple as that? Or would you have always gone down this path, do you think? Well, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? I and mean, we don't know. We don't know. And I often wonder because I am so, as you say, so grateful. I had a world-class education. My parents worked really hard to make that happen for both my brother and I, and I will be forever grateful for that. Um, I wonder that if I had just, you know, not gone to a private school, would it have happened? I don't know. I could have had just, I could have had a different toxic friendship. I could have, that could have still been something that I lack of self-confidence, lack of self-worth, I don't know. Um, I was given the opportunity to change schools um, and I remember saying no that I because from, at that point I was just like the thought of change and what that I'd have to do, it was just all too scary. Um, and maybe maybe changing things would have made a difference. I don't know. Um, I think I would say to parents to what I always say is, is trust your instincts, you know, especially mothers, trust that mother gut instinct of what you feel is right for your loved one. Yeah. You know, and, and I think all too often um, professionals can uh, not disregard it, but in a way, yeah, disregard that, you know, mother saying, I just don't feel that this is right. No, well, this is, and I've seen it happen time and time again where it comes back to the instinct of that mother was correct. Yeah. Do you know, I, I often think about this because my daughter being a ballerina, um, there was a young girl in her in her classes growing up that we noticed started getting slimmer and slimmer and slimmer and obviously dangerously thin. Taylor even went down that path. Now, hers wasn't necessarily 
Um, maybe it was, maybe we don't know, but she just was never interested in food. She wasn't driven by food. I had to constantly, you know, make sure she was eating and do the best that I could. But with all the training, it, she was obviously burning more calories than she was absorbing. Now it took her two ballet teachers and myself to stand there with her and say, if you really want this career, this is what's going to have to change. Your body is your vehicle. Your body needs this fuel. We need to do that. Now, basically, Millie, overnight, she changed her mindset and started making herself eat certain foods to the point where she started to notice how great she felt. She got better and she got more weight on and she started dancing. Now, she never got to your level, but there was another girl who did. And I will never forget it. She was hospitalized. And her mum rang me and said, what can I do? And I just said to her, start listening to some of these podcasts. This is not my area of expertise, but if it was me, I'd be getting some good nourishment into her. What are they feeding her? Now, when she told me the professional doctor or whoever it was that they'd seen had said to her, all we need right now is calories, get McDonald's, get get deep fried chips, get chocolate, get food. Now, this girl already had a mindset that that food was, was bad for her. Like that's what made her fat. And now the doctors are saying, don't worry about that. Just get the calories in. I just can't understand or comprehend from my point of view how food that's just laden with calories but no nutrition is going to support a girl to recover when she's already got a mindset that that food is so wrong, that food is wrong. How do you answer that? What do you say? Look, I think it's really, really important that when I always say this, we talk about food, food has no moral value. So food is not inherently good or bad uh, and you're not inherently good or bad for eating a certain type of food and I think it's really hard in the culture that we exist in now which is heavily saturated by diet culture um, that we do talk about food uh, in that way and we and we demonize certain food groups in recovery it's obviously essential that you have a really well-rounded um, nourish <laughs> nourishment for want of a better word um, and obviously it's essential that you're challenged on foods that your eating disorder feels that you shouldn't be eating um, so that you come out of it feeling like you, you can eat, you know, whatever foods are on offer. However, uh, I understand what you're saying in terms of um, when you're challenging the eating disorder head on and, and it's only foods that um, she finds to be really, really challenging and triggering. I agree that's probably not quite the best approach. And obviously I can't speak to that certain situation because I wasn't there. But I think it comes down to ultimately there needs to be, I believe, a holistic approach to recovery. So that then involves not only uh, increasing calories and getting nourishment in, um, but working with that individual in terms of um, what, yeah, what they need. It's so not only the nourishment, but also the psychological uh, aspects of it. What do they need in terms of self-care? What do they need from a spiritual perspective? Let's look at them and get them coming out of this process really well-rounded rather than just at the weight they need to be at. Because, um, you know, there is this idea, still is, in an eating disorder treatment that until someone is uh, a certain BMI, then they shouldn't be given uh, psychological therapy. I don't agree with that because I know for a fact that if I had not had um, the psychological work alongside at that point, I wouldn't have started eating again. I wouldn't have 
managed to get to the space that I am now in today without that alongside um, the weight gain. I mean, it wasn't even really alongside the weight gain. It's what helped me to be able to gain that weight, mm. um, you know, and it was a significant amount. And so I needed to have someone helping me with the thoughts around that um, mm. and to create the neural pathways. I mean, there's a big ingrained eating disorder superhighway in your head when you're in the midst of an eating disorder. And the only way to change that is to have someone to help you, to show you that you can get off that highway and you can take the bush track on the side of the motorway and you can start to, you know, bushwhack that out more. And the more that you do that, the more that that pathway gets ingrained and then all of a sudden it's a steel road and then all of a sudden it's just as easy to hop on that highway as it is to get on the eating disorder superhighway. And that is you know, the process of recovery. Yeah. Um, and it's so, yeah, it's hard. But, you know, as I always say to my clients, it's Millie's three C's, it's the conscious, consistent commitment. And that's what it is, every moment of every day. But you can do it. And I think it's really important to do it in a holistic manner. I love it. And I think conscious, consistent commitment applies to all areas of challenge, growth, overcoming those challenges, being the best version of yourself and actually trying to accomplish and become something or someone that you really do believe in your own self and your own capabilities. If you were to say to someone right now, a mum or a dad listening to this or a sister or a brother that just happened to listen to this particular interview, who was watching someone they loved, maybe in the depths of their despair, what would your words of advice be? Be a safe space for them. Be somewhere where they feel that they can come and collapse into your arms and cry and not have to explain to themselves. Somewhere where they can come where they're not going to feel like they're going to be judged. I think that's really, really important. Always come from a space of non-judgment and try your best to to understand what they're going through. Don't, you've got to do things in a non-confrontational manner. So even if you're really, really worried, it needs to come from a space of, you know, we really love and care for you and we're noticing A, B, C and D. We'd like to help you with those things because we're concerned that they might turn into, you know, never go in with right you've got a problem and we need to sort we need to sort it out work with them mm. meet them where they're at mm. and but you know i don't think anybody wants anyone to come at them like that right no matter what your issue is what i heard in your conversation and your story was your mum spent a lot of time finding just trying different therapies, different people, different ways until finally you hit the jackpot, so to speak, with Silky. Now, that was a long path and a long journey. So NLP sounds like it was one of the turning points of both your lives, your mum and particularly yours. NLP is about our mind. It's about the languaging, the programming, the things that we have going on in there. And you've said it a number of times, we can get off that highway and create new neurons and new beliefs and values, which I really love, which sounds to me also like the most profound, amazing growth that has come out of your experiences. Would you say NLP could be something that sits along any mental disorder or any illness that's associated to our mental space or emotional space? I I wouldn't I don't want to be as broad as to generalize and say 
any because I don't feel that I have, I'm qualified to make a call on that in terms of, say, for example, things like schizophrenia or people with, um, you know, severe trauma. I'm not sure uh, because I know those things need to be dealt with very, very delicately in order to not sort of trigger off other things. But I do think, generally speaking, NLP has the ability to be an incredible, powerful tool um, in the recovery from, from mental health disorders, uh, absolutely. But I think it, it, it has to be, we can look at it at a macro level and say that, but then I think we need to look at everybody's individual situation. And I think that is, that is one of the things that I have, I know at my very core needs to happen across the board with mental health treatment is we have to stop this blanket approach to treatment and care in terms of you have this disorder, therefore you fit in this box. We tick this box and you have that and then you will go and you will do this treatment and then you will go here. It doesn't work like that. And it definitely, definitely doesn't work like that with eating disorders. Eating disorders do not fit in a box. I think any of us want to be put in a box. We need to look at people as individuals, look at their unique set of circumstances. What was their childhood like? What is their current family situation? Do they have any support? Um, All of those things and what therapies have they tried before? All of that sort of stuff. What are their personality traits? And then look at what would be best for them rather than she has anorexia or she has binge eating disorder or you know, she has uh, borderline personality disorder and uh, bulimia, so then she will get this treatment. It, it shouldn't be looked at like that. It comes back to that holistic approach, that really individualised, client-centred way of, of care. I always go back to uh, I gave a went down with Andrew Wallace to Parliament to speak about the myths and stigma surrounding eating disorders a few years ago now and uh, Professor Pat McGorry was in the audience and um, he said to me said I completely agree with everything that you've just said Millie and what needs to change is our culture of care and I'll always remember that and I do feel since since I spoke in Parliament that we've made great inroads into starting to change that culture of care and in recognising the value of lived experience and how things can't just be a blanket one-size-fits-all approach. But I also know that we've got a long, long way to go. Yeah, and I really appreciate the the time and effort that you personally have made into not only your recovery but learning from your recovery and you set it to serve and help others. Let's move forward. You've now created and been a part of NDD, the first live-in situation here on the Sunshine Coast in Australia. You talk in New Zealand, Australia. You you are an incredible um, force within this amazing healing recovery. But, Millie, even in your amazing gift to society, you still get knocked by people. You still get shamed by people. People want to put you down. I've seen what's happened. We've had many conversations around certain types. What do you think's driving that and how do you overcome it still to this day? I think, well, as you know all too well, <laughs> many teary moments, I think. In the beginning, I found it really, really difficult because it was <laughs> attacking me on the very foundations of what I had worked so hard to uh, be free of and to then 
you know, get myself to a place where I knew that I could give back and be in, in, in an amazing space. And so, you know, I've had, had periods of time in my life where I've dealt with intense grief and that has then affected my weight as it does many people when they go through intense grief. Um, you know, and to be to be vilified for that and to be um, judged for that when I was still completely very well in a healthy weight range. Um, however, people, because I think it comes back to the fact I want to make the biggest impact I possibly can. Therefore, I really have to be a public figure. I have to be, um, I have to put myself out there in any way that I can because that is going to have the greatest impact. And so therefore you put yourself up there for criticism and people are going to want to have an opinion and they're going to make judgments even if they don't know you. And in the beginning I found that really, really hard. It really rocked me. And then I came to this point where I thought, well, if I can hand on heart know that I am well and that I am where I need to be doing what I need to do, then that's all that matters. If I can absolutely stand in my heart space and go, yes, this is, then what does it matter what other people think? What does it really matter? It doesn't. It, it's not like it will never affect me because I am a naturally, I'm an empath and I care. Um, so we'll always, there'll always be, you know, an element of it. And then I think when you, you know, produce things, say like, you know, the podcast series and there are always going to be people that, you know, criticize certain aspects of it. But I think you then have to look at the the bulk of the feedback that you're getting. I think, you know, if you're getting hundreds and hundreds of messages of negativity about something, then I think you really probably need to reevaluate, okay, maybe I did step wrong. And at that point, it's time to apologize and re, you know, rejig where you're going with it. But I think if there's a few, we've talked about this before, you and I, when we've had hundreds and hundreds of you know, if not thousands of positive uh you know feed feedback and comments on things that we've done and then there'll be one maximum two someone you know crawling out of the woodwork to criticize and we find ourselves crying over that um and so i think it's about looking at it keeping it in perspective and just reminding yourself you know you're here doing what you need to be doing and people People either like you say to me all the time, you can be the juiciest peach on the tree and some people just don't like peaches. And I always remember that when I'm having a moment. And, you know, I, I, I give my heart and soul to this work every single day, literally every single day, because it just feels right. And I love to see people finding their freedom and I love to hear that, you know, a one-off conversation with me has turn someone's life around um or I, I never take I don't want to ever take credit for that because it's a really really hard thing to do but it is I guess given them the motivation or it's been the trigger or the turning point for them to go you know what no I'm in and I'm going to do this recovery thing so I want to rephrase that but I think there is something incredibly powerful about yeah about the work that we do and um I will just continue to do it and continue to get stronger against the um you know Barrage that can often come at you. Tall poppy syndrome is definitely alive and well. Let's just say that. <laughs> Before we come to the end, I've got a couple of other questions. But if a young person or any person listening to this is in the, the treadmill of, of an eating disorder, 
isn't it funny how you just use the word treadmill? Treadmill of an eating disorder because that's what it's like. Yeah, the treadmill. Yeah, treadmill was my enemy. My goodness, couldn't get off that thing. But anyway, well, that's an interesting. <laughs> so, if you're on the treadmill of this and you're feeling like you're not sure how to hop off, or you're not sure what the turning point is, or for some reason someone's guided you to listen to this and there's no accidents, someone who had this for 15 years has come out the other side. Now use that massive challenge and almost you know, death-defying moment to now serve and help others. What is your message to someone listening to this that's in that space? That full recovery is possible and that it does not matter how long or how hard you've been struggling with an eating disorder for, you can fully recover. You do not have to manage or live with this illness for the rest of your life. There is hope. There is so much hope and if you don't feel that hope inside of you hold on to the hope that the other people around you in their life in your life because there will be people in your life who are holding on to that hope for you draw strength from that and know that yes it's a really really hard tough journey recovering from an eating disorder but I promise you it is absolutely worth it and if you haven't reached out yet this is this is your time this is your sign reach out and I know Kim will put all uh, my details in the in the show notes so make me your first point of call Um, I'm not scary (laughs) I get it Um, and I'll be more than happy to help point you in the direction of the right care and support that you need and most importantly that you deserve Mm, beautifully said what is your definition of self-love oh now that's a good question gosh wow it's such a hard thing to put into words for me personally it is it being completely accepting of who I am, body, mind, and soul at any point in time and nurturing and caring for that being, however, however you know, I'm presenting myself at, at that point in time. Um, so never um, being disparaging of myself or um, just being mean to myself, you know, the inner mean girl, um, like Melissa Ambrosini says, just not not allowing that to take up time and space. And so I'm very mindful of being kind to myself and in whatever situation, form that I might be presenting, and it sounds weird presenting myself, but you know what I mean? We go through all these transitions in life, right? We can be in different situations and different things are happening. And I think just constantly being kind to myself throughout that is essential and nurturing myself. So not only nurturing on a physical level, but again, on that, um, on that mental, emotional, spiritual level as well, because it is such a holistic, um, holistic thing. And and another another word that's coming through strongly for me is is being happy in my own skin. And that for me was obviously a really, really hard fought battle, really hard fought battle. Um, And so that when I think about self-love, 
that's something else that I, I sort of feel like, yeah, you know, I'm home and I'm in this vessel and gratitude really helped me with that. Yeah. How old are you now? 33. So standing here as a 33-year-old, stunning, successful, beautiful woman, an empath, someone who cares greatly, someone who's been through, for want of a better word, the hero's journey. She's been spat out. She's crawled. She's scrimped. She's saved. She's done everything she can to be the 33-year-old young, amazing woman she is today. And I want you to picture that 12-year-old girl who didn't feel like she measured up. And she put on those jeans and didn't look like the right fit or however it was that she sat there. If you could talk to her now, what would you say to her as she was looking at herself in the mirror? You are absolutely worthy and deserving of love just the way that you are. You do not need to manipulate or change anything about you on any level to please anybody you can just be you the beautiful you that you are and that my darling little girl is more than enough it's beautiful who's someone that you really look up to someone that you think has played a pivotal role or people that have played pivotal roles for you that you'd love to sing out and say thank you to oh there are so many my goodness um well of course I have to start with my mum and dad because without them I literally wouldn't be here today you know my mum stopped work for me when I was 12 and I was literally like her shadow for the next 15 years and that was really really hard um, on us as an entire family but especially on mum it really took a toll on her and I will be forever grateful because she literally and I don't say this lightly she kept me alive I would not be here today without her um, her unfaltering support uh, and her love for me even when it drove her literally to having nervous breakdowns. So, um, yeah, that was definitely, definitely um, huge. Just, I don't know, I can't even articulate it into words really. Um, and then obviously Mark and Gay have had an instrumental um, impact on my life since moving here to the Sunshine Coast. I actually said that to them the other day, I can't believe that there was a life pre you guys um because it feels like we've just been intrinsically linked my whole life which is um yeah which has been really really amazing um and then of course you you've been absolutely like this rock for me especially this year when I have been unable to see my family and yeah I've been through you know so so much um and there are incredible leaders in the field that I've now become incredible friends with, but that were not only uh, really foundational in my own recovery. So Carolyn Costum with her eight keys to recovery um, books, but also, I mean, all her work. And she was the first person in the world to uh, champion lived experience basically. And she opened the first residential facilities uh, in the States, the Wantonido Clinics, which became incredibly successful. And she employed lived experience therapists and she was vilified for it. And um, she paved the way for this and for the work that I'm able to now do. Um, if it wasn't for her and her belief in it, 
um, then, you know, I wouldn't be here doing what I am doing today. And um, there's also another beautiful friend of mine, Keisha, who's also based over in Los Angeles, and she was the executive, um, the uh, vice president of clinical programming, sorry, for the Montanito Clinics and worked very closely with Carolyn. And we're very, very um, close, and she has taught me a lot about this space and about standing up for myself and Claire Middleton um, from the Butterfly Foundation. So she she founded the Butterfly Foundation and she's been um, a really incredible um, light in my life too in terms of helping me to navigate um, this space. And, I mean, there are numerous colleagues and friends and so many people. I mean, I don't, I, I don't want to go on because I don't want people to feel like they've, they've been missed out because there are so many people that I'm so grateful for. My life has been a big sort of patchwork of people that have come in and, and really, you know, I mean, Silky. I, 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 I really credit her with saving my life. She said that it was very much me that did that, but I don't believe that if she had come into my life that I would still be here today. And so, I mean, it's almost like on the spot now, I'm like, where do I even begin and where do I end? But I also, you know, my dear, dear friend, Jamie, um, who I lost this year, she had a huge, huge impact on my life in so, so many ways. And I still miss her so much, but, um, launching healed and doing the podcast, um, and doing all of those things whilst I was really, really in the depths of, um, coming to terms with her loss, which I still haven't really come to terms with but she was so there in spirit by my side and I'm so grateful for that because we were soul sisters and we still are and she's so I feel her energy with me helping me to keep keep fighting the brave fight and doing this and um, I know she'd be really really proud of it all so um, she's another person that's had a huge huge impact um, on on my life so let's stop there before I lose it <laughs> anymore um but yeah please if I haven't uh, there are so many people that I haven't mentioned but we could be here all day we could be here until next week if I was to go through all the people in my life but. of course of course and I'm sure every single person who's been in your life or touched you in some way uh can feel that gratitude and that thanks and I'd like to thank you on behalf of all of them and all of us that you did find the strength, you did choose life, you did choose to recover and you did choose to stand up and not only recover and thrive but now give everything back and that is the greatest gift you could give to every single person who supported you through this journey is to now see you giving back what you've learned from it and I just I just want to high five you from my heart to yours and cannot wait to see how you thrive further and, and the difference you'll continue to make not only with your podcast, but with your private practice, with your community work, and with all the people that you work with. You're a shining light, Millie Thomas, and you're someone who we all truly love and treasure. You're one in a million, and I just want to say thank you. To finish off today, do you have a favourite quote that you love to use or just turn to, apart from being the juiciest, ripest, most succulent peach on the tree, and some people just don't like peaches? Is there one, is there a certain quote that you've always turned to that you really love and you love to share? What would that be? It sure is. Um, so it's Ralph Waldo Emerson and it's to know that even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. 
this is to have succeeded. Millie, thank you. Now, can you just also finish with that beautiful quote? Just if people do want to follow you, do want to reach out to you, I will put it all in the show podcast notes, but if you could just tell us just now, just in case someone's driving, that they'll might remember when they, they hear this, where to go and find you. Absolutely. So um, you can find me online at Healed Recovery Coach. That's both Instagram and Facebook. You can H-E-A-L-E-D. Yes, H-E-A-L-E-D, Recovery Coach. Um, you can head to my website, www.healed.net.au. You can email me, Millie, M-I-L-L-I-E, at healed.net.au. Um, and I also run um, the Ended social media as well. So that's at E-N-D-E-D Australia. And so this, that will all be in the show notes. Um, come and find me, whichever which way. Um, you contact me, I can talk to you about Ended, I can talk to you about Healed, um, talk to you about eating disorders in general. <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> You are, and I think you're being inundated. And also, I would dare say through the work that you're doing is creating a community of people, becoming the tribe, the network for that very uh, important aspect that you talked about at the beginning, a very holistic, all-rounded team approach to the recovery for every individual. And that's something I want to acknowledge you for because health is not just one generalized thing, as you say. And I think that's probably the little point of difference that I want to acknowledge you for because whilst I know every single person does their intent and their job with an intent to support, help and heal people, I think without ego, when we look at it as a team approach and we actually do this as a community to support that, we always say it takes a tribe to raise a child. It also takes a tribe to heal an individual. So I, I want to thank you for highlighting that because that to me seems to be the absolute magic, the essence in recovery. Thank you so much for being on the Self Love Podcast. I love you and I cannot wait to see what comes of this. Oh, thank you so much. I love you too. And I'm so grateful for you in every way. <laughs> love you, Millie. Thanks for listening to the Self Love Podcast. Be sure to write a review and share the love with your friends and family. And head over and visit Kim and her team at 28.com. That's the word 20 and the number 8.com. Take good care. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.